0: Welcome to Literary Friction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt. Here, as always, with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. You're looking fab today. Glasses on the head. Thanks, I'll babe. Stop deconstructing <laughs> your wardrobe. Anyway, this month's theme is Oz. So we'll be talking about Australia and its many depictions in literature, from the books of Miles Franklin, who was a woman, I did which not I just found out.
1: Know that? I did not know that at all. Mm-hmm.
0: To Richard Flanagan, who's not a woman. No. Presumably. Very, very not a woman. <laughs> <laughs> writes quite masculine novels, I would say. But we're also going to be discussing the metaphorical meaning behind that nickname. Oz is the foreign, the distant, the magical, and the exotic. Something that the Antipodean has long represented for damp and green Britain.
1: Hey, of the damp, please.
0: It's pretty damp. It's
1: pretty green too, though.
0: An author who plays brilliantly with that theme is Evie Wilde, whose most recent work is a graphic novel, Everything is Teeth, about her childhood fascination with sharks, sparked by visits to her family's farm in Australia. Born in London and raised in Australia and South London, Evie is also the author of the award-winning novels After the Fire, A Still Small Voice, and All the Birds Singing. In 2013, she was included on Granta Magazine's Once a Decade Best of Young British Novelists list.
1: And she deserves every single prize. Yes, we love her. (laughs) Yeah, she's amazing. I love her work.
0: Octavia and I are talking to Evie this month, plus we'll be discussing the theme and recommending books. So here's our interview with Evie Wilde. Um, Now, just a caveat beforehand. You may notice some baby sounds and perhaps some jingling and stamping of feet. Um, <laughs> there was a baby in the room. Yes there, His was, name is buddy. there was a very active baby in the room <laughs> who was really keen to get in on the conversation.
1: He had some very uh, prescient points that he would announce with a ah!
0: yes and he's also
1: Evie's baby we should say. Yes Evie's baby buddy
0: baby. that she brought Evie's that we loved baby. very much um, and you'll be hearing a lot from him. <laughs> so here's our interview with Evie. Evie Wilde, thank you so much for coming in today. Pleasure. So let's start talking about Everything is Teeth, Mm -hmm. which is in some sense a departure for you. You you published two novels before this, and this is a memoir of your own childhood, and it's also a graphic novel. It is. Um, Can you talk about why you wanted to write it and in this particular form?
2: Um, Well, I've always loved graphic novels and felt a a sort of... Impotency—that I'm not a good enough drawer to um, to do one. So, um, so I've been—I've tried to do a few um, projects with Joe Sumner. who's an old university friend of mine, um, and this is really the first one that's worked. That's had any real uh, sort of proper story. I think we we tried too hard to to kind of fumble about with. Um, with strange genres I think before we did a scary thing about monkeys which was just too deliberately scary um, whereas this was a subject that um, scared me as a child which is sort of the most visceral stuff I think for me. Yes yeah, so sharks and my childhood in Australia is, is kind of the place I go back to um, when I'm starting out new projects um, so it was just it was just a nice thing to do, to do a bit of memoir. Um, And for me, my, my writing seems to get shorter and shorter. Um, You know, the, I think the second novel was quite a bit shorter than the first. And it seems like a natural thing for me to try and take out as many words as possible. And and the graphic novel is obviously the perfect way of doing that.
0: So what do you do after a graphic novel? Who knows?
2: Um, maybe just a bit of, of like performance art, <laughs> interpretive dance, maybe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> On the subject of Joe's uh, illustrations, does he always work in those kind of two contrasting styles? Because one of the things that's so striking is that the shark and the fish in the book mm. are rendered in a in a more photorealist style, mm. I guess, than your family and, and you and the other human characters. Mm. Um, And was that something that just developed out of the idea, or was it a deliberate starting point?
2: It was kind of there from the start that, um, I think, in art it's very difficult to get true representations of sharks, people either try and make them comical or they make them more frightening than they are, Um, and especially in the points where the shark is a sort of figment of my imagination. it it seemed like a nice thing for it to be the most real thing in the, on the page.
1: Yeah, it's it's beautifully haunting these images mm. with the shark just floating alongside. Yeah, you, you know? I think
2: those were really the turning point. That was when we kind of worked out what the book was really about um, when Joe came up with that idea.
1: Mm. And that that's something that's really interesting about when you have words and images together, they play off one another don't they? Mm. So the words distill the pictures and then the pictures kind of draw the words yeah. on.
2: Well that's exactly how we worked, I mean we, it, we took about seven years to do it because we're both doing other projects and um, to begin with I just gave him a chunk of writing and then he did some drawings and then I looked at the drawings and wrote to those drawings and, and then we kept going back and forth like that so it's like a conversation really. Um, and yeah I think it's stronger for that for us kind of never feeling like it was we were doing the finished thing you know it was all changeable the whole way to the end
0: for something that's so personal and particular to you it's Mm -hmm. about your childhood Joe had to that was quite a feat for him to draw your memories and your imagination
2: we we think in quite a similar way I think Um, and you know he knows my family so that's useful um he knows what they look like at least um, and he did for for about 5 years he kind of creepily had his studio plastered with all of my family
0: snapshots so that's amazing <laughs> how did you feel about his depiction of you did you, did you talk about that i i really like it. i like
2: that it's it's basically a blank you know i'm just there as a um something to look through the eyes of i think um so i really like that
1: yeah and the eyes are these black, mm. round dots, yeah. aren't they? They really are yeah. that kind of childhood wonderment with the widened yeah. eyes. I
2: mean, they're like
1: shark's eyes. Really. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. a yeah. doll's eye. <laughs> I have a question about that, actually. Mm-hmm. There's a bit where they, you talk about putting your finger in a shark's eye and mm. the bone closing over the mm. finger. Is that, do they have like a bony eyelid?
2: Yeah, so when you see photographs of, say, a great white kind of jumping up and getting a seal, they'll always have a white eye, and that's because a protective layer comes over their eye. That's Um, very frightening. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it also is the, um, is the, the one kind of advantage that the seal has at that moment is that the shark is blind, so it has a chance to flip off.
0: One of the things that I loved about this graphic novel, and I don't think it's a spoiler as such, Mm -hmm. but it really ends up being a story. It's, of course, about your fascination and fear of sharks, but it's also about death and particularly Mm. your father's death and how the concept of death changes for us when we age and and when we change ourselves. And you said that was something that happened in the process of writing it as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, it totally. um, My father died, I think, about a year before we completed it and you know it's it's your when you're writing a novel um that's two or three years and and this graphic novel is as i said seven years so a lot of stuff in your life changes and informs the book um which is as i said was like always in flux so it was quite nice to realize that actually looking back on a lot of the work that we'd done it it had been you know, my driving force behind it had always kind of been my father, that I hadn't really seen that, but as soon as he got sick, that all kind of lifted out somewhat.
0: There's a really heartbreaking scene when he brings you to a shark museum. <laughs> yeah. And you hate it. You yeah. don't hate it, but you really struggle with it. And he, you, you sense that he feels incredibly guilty and sad.
2: Yeah, yeah, the, the Vic Hislop um, shark museum is it's like a, a roving museum um, and Vic Hislop is a lunatic who believes that um, he's, he's an evangelist and he believes that sharks are God's mistake and you know and the whales beach themselves because they're, they're frightened of the sharks and you know load of crap and um, of crap. And, and I think there is a, an idea that when you are interested and fascinated and love sharks that it means, you know, oh, let's buy her uh, a mako jaw on the internet, you know, something, anything to do with sharks, that means that Evie will love. And you kind of go, oh, this is like, that's like saying someone loves a Dalmatian and buying them a skinned, you know, hide or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think my dad had slightly a, a skewed idea of, of what I meant and what I saw in the sharks that was interesting and...
1: I wanted to ask you about the word phobia because in the description of the book it talks about it was your phobia of sharks, mm-hmm. which for me didn't come didn't feel like the right word mm. because when I read it, you know, it's so much more there's a great you have a great um pull towards them as mm. well as a sort of
2: yeah.
1: horror. And I wondered, yeah, would you describe it as a phobia or what? I
2: guess not a phobia, more I mean, mm. I think it was more about um Sharks standing in for stuff for me, you know, I was an anxious kid anyway and um and having a small amount of information as a child about something that so, was so alien to me um was it just meant that they were on my mind all of the time um but i was you know I was frightened of them when I was in the u k which is a fairly stupid thing i was the main thing I was frightened of was that I was actually dreaming. And um, my everyday life was a dream. And in reality, I was on a raft asleep and about to roll off into the sea. So more an obsession, I think, than a phobia. I think that'd be
0: more accurate. And you say in, in the graphic novel that it's almost more English to be afraid of sharks.
2: Yeah. I mean, I do know, I mean, my mum, is still convinced that she's going to be eaten by a shark and she's the Australian side of the family. <laughs> and I do know a lot of Australians who are worried about sharks, but they're worried about sharks when they're in, you know, the Pacific Ocean. They're not worried about sharks in an estuary in Hull.
0: What was it like writing the text for a graphic novel? Did did it take you a while to sort figure that out or or was it quite easy yeah, to...? Yeah,
2: it did it took a lot of different forms in that at first it was this big block of text um, and then and then I had to sort of have the realisation that it was more important to cut the text out and let the, let the pictures speak for the text um, which as a writer is you know a little bit of a you have to swallow your pride a bit actually that's the, that's the skill if you're doing a, a joint adventure with an artist it's got to be you've got to be able to cut the stuff out and be all right with that. And a lot of
0: this is given over to images Mm. more so than a lot of other graphic novels I've read.
2: The kind of graphic novels I love are the ones that are mostly images.
0: Okay let's move on to talk about your novel All Mm -hmm. the Birds Singing. Um, and the theme of our show today is Oz and all of its senses, so mm-hmm. we'll, we'll ask you a little bit more about that later. But let's first talk about this novel, which I know Octavia and I both sort of revere. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe it. that's too strong a word, but yeah. I've given it to many, many people as a gift. Um, oh, and it's, uh, you know, I've I've read it multiple times now, and, and every time I find something new, and even in a very small space. Yeah. Um, so let's start by talking about Jake, who is the, central character here. She is unlike really any other character I've read in literature. She's a woman but casts off every stereotype that you could have about a woman. She's, you know, strong and fierce and dark and brooding and and troubled. Why did you want to write Jake and uh, how did you shape her as a character?
2: Well, I wanted to write a woman who wasn't there to be um, fallen in love with or to fall in love, um, which seemed it seems very hard to get away from that, as if that's, you know, and as if having a baby, um, and I'm aware of the irony of, of this <laughs> at the moment, but as, it, as if having a baby is the end point of every woman's life, and in order to do that, you first must fall in love and and have people fall in love with you, and you must have no knowledge of your own beauty, but secretly really hot you know yeah it pisses me off I just wanted to write someone who was physically normal and well Jake is physically large and, and strong and all of those things but but why can't that be a normal thing for a female character or or a female person
1: I wanted to ask about and I don't think this is spoiling it too much but to say that there is quite a lot of sexual violence that punctuates the novel and was that um, a deliberate conceit from the beginning or was it something that just emerged out of how the characters were interacting?
2: Um, I think trying to write a woman um, who has been a teenager, I think it's impossible to, to shy away from that. I think we all um, experience some kind of sexual violence, whether it's,
0: whether it's physical
2: or mental. Or situational, structural yeah. violence, either. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, and there's so much of it that gets pushed under the carpet and that I think there's a, a really interesting and disturbing thing that we do to our female teenagers, which is tell them that they must be um, beautiful and sexy and, and, very importantly, thin, and they must want to have sex, but then they must not enjoy the sex um and it's just so odd and i think it breeds um a lot of anger in women and it certainly did in me and i think when you look at the amount of young women who self harm or drink too much or all of that stuff it's it's all it feels like it's all confusion it's all just you know being told to do one thing but behave in a totally different way
1: mm. throughout the novel she's in environments that are either very empty of people, mm. or heavily populated by men. But, oh, yeah, um, And I wondered if that was something that you found, I mean, in your own life, kind of the frustrations of being a, a, a woman in a world that's still very heavily mm. masculine-dominated yeah. and things, if that was a parallel that came from
2: your own experience. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it's, I get asked quite a lot, you know, what's it like being a female writer? And it's the same as it any other walk of life, it's it's the same problems and the same difficulties you know, it's a chauvinist world whatever um, way you look at it
1: yeah, and it's interesting in this text where Jake is a shepherd, Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know, I couldn't help but feel the symbolism of the shepherd and sheep, and this, you know sheep is this kind of symbol of innocence, and connected to like religious ideology about the lamb and, and everything oh. and and how Jake has a relationship to the sheep that, be, maybe because of her gender, comes across in a slightly different way than maybe the men in the book and the way that they yeah. relate to their animals.
2: I think with animals, there's um, if you're if you're someone with a lot of guilt, um, I think animals can be an amazing sort of view into your soul. Really, I think that she's trying to make amends by looking after sheep um, which is never going to work out especially since she sends them off to market. I think having these mute things that you're in charge of can't explain to them that um, what you're doing is for either their own benefit or that there's nothing to be afraid of or that you know you can't really apologise to a sheep. Um, They don't get it. (laughs) Um, So yeah I think I think there is definitely something in in the idea of a a shepherd Um, and she's sort of given herself something that she can't possibly succeed in Um, she's doesn't matter how well she looks after these sheep at the end they're all gonna go and be butchered um, if they don't get butchered by whatever's in the woods Uh,
0: you you're talking about atonement And we know that something very dark has happened in jake's past she She has a back covered in scars um, and one of the reasons that you turn the page in this book is is partially because you want to know mm. what actually happened to her. Was that always the plan for the structure that kind no, of withhold actually
2: um that came quite late i I basically having written about sixty thousand words i just looked at the structure and was like there's something you know I was enjoying the writing I was enjoying the people I was writing about but there was something kind of missing about the structure and um and it was like you know there's a certain point when you're writing where you have to go why is this being written and who is this who is Jake kind of addressing in a way even though it's a first person account and you know that's something that you buy into when you open a book there is there is a point as the writer that you kind of go okay well what why does this exist and that turned into you know I I basically I'd written both strands uh at the same time they were kind of in conversation with each other it'd be like there's a woman on this island with these sheep how did she get there you know
0: yeah, and I should say the other strand is set in Australia mm. and while the the strand set in um somewhere in the UK moves forward in time, the Australia mm. section moves backward in yeah. time. So it's quite complex.
2: It is. I mean it it always sounds much more complex than it is, which was you know, me deciding to do that was essentially just sort of split, splitting it in half and and sort of sandwiching it in a way. Um Sounds like a bit of a cop-out, but I really like
1: Yeah, um. and I testify to that.
2: <laughs> I found
1: it very disorienting, but in a, in a it was one of the things that made it such a powerful narrative, because it really, for me, it really encapsulated the idea that wherever you go, you take yourself with you. Mm. So, you know, your guilt is going to follow yeah. you around. Yeah.
0: Um, well, let's talk about uh, our theme today, because I think one of the reasons we chose, it, well, the reason we chose this theme is because in your books, you, you've you said before that you go to Australia mm. first when you're writing. It's it's somewhere yeah. you spent time, yeah. a lot of time as a child. Um, but also Australia seems like a very symbolic place in, mm. in both Ooh. of these books and, and also in your yeah. first book, After the Fire is Still Small Voice. Um, so can you just talk about what, what Australia means to you and especially what Australia means to you in your writing?
2: Oh, that's a, a tricky one. Um... I mean for me it's it's like you say it's it's my childhood comfort place to write from it's 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 sort of other cuz I I didn't grow up in Australia I grew up going to Australia a lot and so for me it was the place where all the stuff happened um and it was the place that I thought I was going to end up living and then it's also a place that it's, it's got such a recent bloody past um, and I think my family out there somehow feel part of that in a way. You know, I love them and I'm, I'm quite close to them but they are, um, they're farmers in a not particularly populated part of Australia and so they kind of make me face the fact that we're all capable of bad things, I think. Hopefully they're not listening to this. Um, <laughs> but, you know, just the... Um, Growing up in London, <laughs> sorry, okay. Growing up in Just London. had a bear
0: at me. <laughs> um, you're
2: you're used to a mix of people. You're used to um, as a woman being treated at least fairly, kind of um, neutrally, um, and you're used to living amongst different cultures and races. And I think. Um, my Australian family who I kind of idolise as, as a kid um, I don't know as I've grown up it's it's kind of become more and more interesting how um, you know I still love them and have a lot of time for them I still think they're exceptional people in a lot of ways but there's that disappointment sometimes of like oh, that's what you think um, and and then you have to make yourself either not alright with that or alright with it um, and you know, you either decide to close yourself off from them and not see them again or make allowances, which makes you question yourself. And I, I just think it's, it's an interesting thing to have um, this place which is wonderful and incredible and artistic and then also racist and homophobic and chauvinist and really, really bloody, um, if that makes any sense. I don't know, it's, it's a place that troubles me a lot.
0: It does make sense. And I think that really comes out in your fiction. I think Mm -hmm. Um, your fiction strikes me as very empathetic, but empathetic in the sense that we're asked to evaluate some people who do pretty bad things Mm. and who think things that we don't necessarily agree with. Um, Yeah. and it's less interested in... I, I, I don't think there's anyone who's purely good in no. any of your novels. No,
2: well, I don't think there is anyone who's purely good. <laughs> um, or purely bad. I think I think it's a useless thing to do to, um, to label people as monsters or martyrs. I think it's just, um, you know, people are people. And if somebody's an asshole now, they probably went always... <laughs> yeah,
1: well, hey, and yeah. that comes out in in the in everything is teeth as well, where the shark is both a figure of mm-hmm. frightening power and also, you know, something that you empathize
0: with. Yeah, let's get back to the landscape, um, which seems just—it's such a strong, present place in in your novels and in everything is teeth. Um, the the sweeping vista vistas of Australia or the, you know the. The, the rivers where mm-hmm. you thought you might have seen sharks Yeah. Um, how is is that something you've always been attracted to and and how do you think about writing about the Australian landscape?
2: Yeah I th- landscape in general um, fascinates me I think because the Australian landscape it's very much the idea of one person on their own against the landscape and how the landscape changes them how with Australia you know, we talked about the animals that are much more dangerous, and but there's also the sun, which peels the skin off your back. There's the the re- red hot earth. It it feels like it shapes you, and um and I've always been interested in how people react to their surroundings when they think no one's looking. You know, <laughs> whether they. I don't know, run on all fours or (laughs) or just... Do you run on all fours? I just run the house sometimes, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Buddy certainly
0: does. (laughs) I also wanted to ask you about animals in the landscape because we talked a bit about Jake's relationship to to sheep. Yeah. But um, the, the landscape in... In obviously in everything is teeth which is filled with sharks, yeah. but uh, also spiders and yeah. and in all the birds singing, you know there are birds yeah. everywhere. And yeah, a lot of animals who suffer violence. Mm. Um, I noticed, you know, Jake. There's this horrible scene in all the birds singing where Jake runs over a kangaroo, yeah. and I I sensed a, a sort of mirror scene in everything is teeth when they kill yeah. the shark, um, mm. and find little shark Pops, pups yeah. inside that they then yeah. eat and it's yeah. quite gruesome and violent mm. and I wonder if that that's just emerges out of the violence of your writing I perhaps. think
2: that's just that's just there anyway I think that um you know when humans come into contact with animals there's there's violence but animals on their own do do yeah. terrible things to each other there's that um picture that's been doing the rounds of a Kangaroo tenderly caressing um, its mother before it dies. And it turns out, you know, the other kangaroo is trying to fuck it, <laughs> and it's been going round, and everyone's been going, "Oh, isn't it sad and wonderful?" And it's just like, no, that's you know, generally, if you're an animal, it's about, it's about getting your end away and, and eating, and yeah. and you know, we're one step away from that in that we feel guilty about it, but that's yeah. that's what we're after. Fill your holes. <laughs> yeah, <exactly.
0: laughs> I can't help but feel guilty about it, though. I I think you really play into that. It's mm. it's almost more devastating to see a dead animal because we think of them as innocents yeah. than it is to it a is. human who we know to be flawed. Yeah,
2: I I think um. I think that again plays into the the idea of the sheep. Um, you know, once you take responsibility for an animal or a baby, um, <laughs> you suddenly have this. Oh, terror. It's going for the mic. <laughs> <laughs> you have an absolute terror because you can't explain what's going on to them, and and they suddenly become a you know an extra limb or something. You know, like um, English people and their dogs. It's they become they become sort of human beings almost, but that you can never. Explain fully that the vet is not there to butcher them. The vet is there to hopefully make them better. But eventually, butcher yeah. them.
1: and I have to ask: Have you skinned a sheep?
2: the <laughs> <Because laughs> skin. Do you mean I mean shaved a sheep?
1: Sho- have you ever shorn a sheep? Skinned. Skin. Jesus.
2: I'm revealing a lot about myself right now. Have you ever
1: skinned <laughs> a sheep? Have you ever shorn a sheep?
2: I haven't. I um I was was given the opportunity um but i thought it was a bit much for you know the sake of having an authentic um fictional storyline for me to put the sheep through that much trauma (laughs) um but i i spent quite a lot of time on a, a sheep estate um in herefordshire and um and so i've kind of seen a lot of lambs born and you know had the sheep experience but I don't know I don't want to make it bleed (laughs) and you know they were so up for me doing it and I I felt like I really pussed out but it just it wasn't worth it for anyone
0: you said you didn't mean to write about sheep
2: no I'm not interested in sheep Um, (laughs) well I'm more interested in them now I guess having found out a lot about them but it's mainly you know sheep are desperate to die in a variety of ways
0: What, what do you mean by that
2: the amount of diseases they get, you know, if a sheep falls over at the wrong, at the wrong um, time of day after eating too much, it'll blow up um, and it can't get, can't right itself again. And, wow. You know, you have to, you can slit a hole in its stomach and let the gas out or you can try and roll it over, see if it farts its way back to life or, you know, it's, they've got lots of, they've got lots of um, death plan sheeps.
0: And, and finally, do you go back to Australia often? Do you, do you research the landscapes that you write about, or are you more interested in making it an imaginary um, space? I do
2: go back often. Um, I went back with Buddy in May. That was fun, wasn't it? Um, but I don't write about Australia while I'm there. Um, I find it hard to write about a landscape that I'm in. Um, so I tend to visit places, and then a few years later, some of that landscape will pop up in something I'm writing, but I'm not very good at doing sort of direct um, research and stuff.
1: That's interesting that it, it almost has to become um, a, a, form of, a form of nostalgia to have the yeah. relationship with the landscape yeah. when you're not, not there anymore.
2: Well, I'm the same with um, notebooks. I keep lots of notebooks, but I never read them. Mm. But you kind of write something down and then four years later it will pop up in some other way but um otherwise i feel like you end up crowbarring you know interesting factoids in Mm -hmm. and um and it kind of gets you away from the story
0: okay evie thank you so much for coming in today thanks (laughs) for bringing buddy who is a great entertainment to us all (laughs) you had some very insightful
1: things to say my
0: friend (laughs) um and evie will be joining us at the literary friction faber social which is on the first of february at the social in london This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plot with Octavia Bright. And now we are going to talk about the theme, which is Oz. Ooh. The Wizard of Oz has come up a couple of times in the show, hasn't it? Yeah. Sort of an ur er text. But first, let's talk about Australian literature, which I have to say, and you probably know more than I do, but I realized in preparation for the show that I am woefully ill-equipped to talk about Australian literature. I have vet, read very little of it, which is like <laughs> maybe kind of embarrassing. I don't know. What, is it?
1: Well, it's funny, isn't it? Different um, nationalities, the literature becomes more dominant. I mean, I grew up on Australian children's books, but I stopped reading Aussie literature probably when I was about 14 and I grew out of, um, uh, what's his name? He did Round the Twist. Paul Jennings who I loved Um, but it's funny because I went to Australia quite a lot as a child because my mum's sister lived out there and I grew up reading these um, books called Possum Magic by this this wonderful woman called Mem Fox and they're really like it's all the outback animals you kangaroos koalas, possums and bush magic and bush babies Um, and so it kind of I had this understanding of that like Australia as this Oz you know OZ kind of place and then Paul Jennings who's whose collections are all called things like Unreal, Eight Surprising Stories, or Uncanny, Even More Surprising Stories. And this whole thing is that their stories with a twist and they're really um, kind of magical realism, I guess, mm. which sort of fits with this idea of Australia as this distant territory. But then after I grew out of Paul Jennings, I kind of stopped. And I realised, like you, actually, um, in terms of, like, adult books, <laughs> uh, fiction, I, yeah, I don't think I'd really... Um, read any of the people that you picked up on the list, anyway. Yeah, shocking.
2: So
0: why? Welcome to Karen Octavia's <laughs> Australian literature. We are Show. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I well, I think maybe there is a cultural fascination with Australian Britain, but and I don't want to make a. Big generalization, but there is the sense that it's kind of a culturally backward place. Well, no, you can
1: make that point. Brits, Brits are really snobby about Australia.
0: Yeah, because so, it's where we
1: sent no. our trash, babe. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that's one of the reasons that that people are less likely to pick up an Australian novel, yeah. and 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 maybe it just in in the US, it's because it feels so culturally far away. Yeah. Um, that it just, even though it's in in English. Um, Americans just aren't as interested in reading about Australia. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I am more interested now. Um, I've having read his ha- book, yeah, and yeah. having read um, recently, I did read um, Narrow Road to the Deep North by Richard Flanagan, which was which the reason I read it was because it won the Booker, and it's actually set in the Burma death camps, so not really in Australia. But um, he's an amazing writer. Also,
1: an Australian perspective on all that Southeast Asian stuff is very different right. from a British one, you know.
0: And, and introduced me to a, a terrible thing in history that I have to admit I knew nothing about. Mm. Um, and many of those prisoners were Australian and New Zealand.
1: Wow, I didn't, I, I know nothing about it also.
0: Yeah, well, I would I would really recommend that book. But, you know, Tim Winton is a name that gets thrown around a lot. Peter Carey, of course. Yeah. Um, Hannah Kent, who wrote Burial Rites, is Australian as well, um, even though that's a book about Iceland. Um, so there are plenty of wonderful... <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: the, the biggest Aussie... Uh sort of um, writer that I've read is obviously Jermaine Greer. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> Who you don't... Know, but but she's she, an expat, yeah. She's an expat. Story. She repatriated, really, in a lot of ways. Yeah, it was...
0: You know what's hilarious, though, is I was reading various articles about Australian literature, and all of them were quite defensive about the expats. So they were like... Well, Germaine Greer obviously has settled in Britain, but remains very committed to Australia <laughs> and in love with her homeland. It's like, you know, methinks she yeah. doth protest too much. Pray. Um. So themes in Australian literature, obviously, you know, what can you really say? about an entire country, an entire group of many different people who are writing about many different experiences. Um, but I think there's a sense that a lot of Australian literature is really shaped by the landscape. I mean, that's certainly true for Evie. Um, and it's and I think it's significant that so much of that country um, is uninhabited.
1: Mm, rural and brutal, and all of those dangerous snakes and spiders and lions and tigers and bears in my kind of thing it mm. is it, and and i mean i spent quite a lot of time there and in the outback and um it it is absolutely overwhelming the power of that landscape and the emptiness and the fact that you know you could just strike out on a walk and walk for days and not come across another person and the sun would crisp you up before you even got the chance to have water you know it's it's very brutal so i, I think that is one of the kind of yeah the most impactful things about setting a a narrative there but then also it's a country that has such a violent past Mm. you know colonial violence and
0: that's something that ev mentioned as well yeah
1: and it's something that in australia the australian consciousness is only quite recently coming around to look at um these you know massacres of aboriginal people and um when i was a little girl airs rock was called airs rock and it's now Called Uluru, which is its origin, you know, it's its indigenous name. So there's a, a big shift happening. And I was looking um, up in preparation for the show in literature as well, obviously, like the the, the voice of the aboriginal writing. Um, and there's there's a lot of very interesting sounding stuff happening that I now really want to find out more about. Tell me about it. Well, um, there are a few particular authors. Uh, there's this, a book called the S- the Swan Book by Alexis Wright, which was published in twenty thirteen. So really recent, really contemporary look at, at this kind of stuff, and it's really a challenge for white Australians to come to terms with the impact of colonialism and and the violence of the British occupation on Aboriginal land and people. Um, and it's kind of it fits into the genre of the post the post national narrative. So. What she's trying to do is, it's, it seems to me from just learning, like reading about it, is to take this very national issue of, you know, the whitewashing of Aboriginal history and relate it to global affairs. Um, so l- l- going beyond the national border out into kind of worldwide issues. And I think that that has a lot, um, a lot of traction because... Actually colonial history is something that's happened all over the world and we've it's time for a reckoning, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. And a lot of newer countries, I'm thinking of America as well, in their early literature, it's it's partially about nation building, it's partially about self defining. Um, but maybe what you're suggesting is that it's moved beyond that. And and it's partially mm. because other voices are starting to make themselves known rather than just the white coloner,
1: that's colonizers. That's it. That, yeah, exactly. And the subaltern, suddenly there's a space and there's um, an interest in hearing what, what that that um,
0: repressed voice almost has to say. Yeah, I also read about this um, the term mateship, <laughs> which <laughs> we're going to get angry letters from lots of Australians. I but like, yeah, um, refrain from trying to do the it, accent. I But I think that's really interesting is that that's been a theme that people have picked up in lots of Australian novels about the collective good rather than just the rugged individual, Mm. which you wouldn't necessarily think was the case in a country filled with desert. In which you you know in in America the whole narrative is that th- the reason why we value rugged individualism is because of that colonial spirit forced to be in the wilderness yeah. and survive and and that's emerged as a completely different concept in in Australia.
1: Maybe because of the brutality of the landscape, you have to bond together or, or perish. Maybe there's something in that that you know um, you come across a man in the desert. And you're going to offer him water and you're going to, you know, the kind of parable side of things. But I, d- I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of talking out my ass here as well. Yeah. OK, <laughs> let's
0: move on to Oz <laughs> as a more general concept. Um, so there is the sense that, you know, there. it's not a mistake that Australia has been called Oz. Mm. Um, and Oz, of course, is is, um, L. Frank Baum's creation in The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. It's a mirror world. Um just enough like our world for it to be fascinating and recognizable um but different enough that it's it's a place of escape Mm. and exoticism and mysticism
1: thing i find so funny about oz in the wizard of oz the wonderful wizard of oz is that the things that are recognizable the things that are transposed are essentially bureaucracy like there's a munchkin coroner (laughs) and it's um it's actually it's it's really interesting. It's like the structures are are, are um, kept the same, and then he fiddles with the size of, of things and people. So obviously, Munchkins are tiny, and then you've got Glinda the Good Witch and all this kind of stuff. It's the
0: same in Harry Potter.
1: It is, we, yeah. We love, yeah,
0: we love the, the the rigid structures of the English public school system.
1: Oh, hooray! Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fascinating, though, isn't it? Because if if that's what those become the tropes of things that we can immediately attach to in order to understand how a society works, a one that's set in a
0: parallel world, you know. And you can relate that back to the British fascination with Australia. Mm. It's, it's British bureaucracy transposed into a sort of wacky world with spiders and sharks and mm-hmm. desert vistas. Um, and I think that's very appealing to people.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Also, as you pointed out, our country is so
0: damp. <laughs> um, and do, what, do you, what, what are writers who write about Oz-like places? What?
1: Well, the first people that came to my mind yeah. were three, like in quick succession, Terry Pratchett, obviously, with his Discworld, um, which is Discworld is, is a parallel experience of a, of a different world. And I, I've only read a few Terry Pratchett novels. I, I wasn't someone who became completely wedded to his writing. I think he's phenomenal in his way. Um, but then also Jasper Fjord, who I love, who wrote the the Well of Lost Plots, and there's this, the series of Thursday Next, who's this detective. But he takes, um, it's very postmodern, very knowing satire, basically. But he takes, he plucks characters from literature, different books, throws them together in this kind of. So Miss Havisham drives a fast car and she's a mad granny, and then other people pop up and that's interesting if you think of the world of literature as its own Oz that can be self-referential and um, meta in its own way um, it's kind of fascinating like when you think of books like Pride and Prejudice with Zombies or whatever that's kind of turning um, turning a well-loved classic into an Oz-like space and then China Mieville who also writes about, you know, societies that we can recognise, that we can recognise their structures, but they're totally other.
0: Let's talk about our favourite Aussie novels, in both senses of the word. Australia, (laughs) do you want to start?
1: (laughs) Start? Australia here. Um, I will start. So my uh, immediate thought was Margaret Atwood. I think of her as an Aussie writer, um, because so many of her books evoke these strange worlds, that are different, but yet totally recognisable instantly. Um, And the one that had the biggest impression on me is called Oryx and Crake, uh, which is a double fit, actually, because um, it was inspired by a trip she took to northern Australia when she was in the middle of writing a book and she was frustrated and she went on this bird-watching trip with her partner and she saw some wild red-necked crakes, which are a type of bird, half red, half brown, and it somehow sparked the idea. Um, And and it kind of brought into focus her fear of global warming and and catastrophe of the way the world was going. And so she wrote this novel, which is set in this post-apocalyptic world, Um, and the narrative focuses on this guy called Snowman, who we later learn was actually a boy named Jimmy before he became this figure. And Snowman, already you're thinking of Wizard of Oz type character. Um, And he lives near a group of primitive beings that seem to be human-like, but they're not exactly and he refers to them as crackers, and you find out they're herbivorous humans. And interestingly, they only have sex during a breeding season, and it's a polyamorous sexual experience, and then they totally switched off for the rest of the year. Um, and they only do it to advance the species. So this, it's not because they you know, they t- t- take pleasure from it. Um, anyway, the novel, it uses flashbacks to show us Snowman's life when he was still Jimmy, and, um, and you learn that the world he was in was this, this world of advanced scientific development, ruled by the multi-national, multinational corporations and propaganda. And people lived in compounds and bioengineering was all the rage. And, you know, really as fantasy sci-fi kind of structure. Anyway, I don't want to give any more away, um, but a lot more happens. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's a really fantastic and affecting book. And it asks questions about accountability, the human imprint on the planet, um, and also the monomaniacal power of Ozlike figures you know scientists and big business so that's a, yeah
0: a hearty recommendation from me great um i've i have only read the handmaid's tale by margaret atwood which is also excellent no but, but. this
1: one i think it's super
0: all right um i'm going to recommend pass the shallows by fable Parrot, who is an australian writer um and this was a quite a short novel that was published in 2011 and i don't know that it's I, I think it, it was quite a quiet novel, as people would describe it. Um, you can't pitch it very easily. It doesn't have a grand love story. But it, it, I don't often cry when I read novels. I meet people who cry all the time when they read novels. <laughs> Octavia's just pointed to herself. <laughs> Sorry. <I'm> crying. <laughs> She's crying right now. I'm crying right now. Um, and, I, and I just wept at the end of this one, wow. which I think um, is testament to its power, and and um and sort of despite the writing, which is incredibly restrained, incredibly um, sort of spare and beautiful, um, but I will I'll tell you about it. Um, it was it's set in the remote southeast corner of Tasmania, and it's about three brothers who live with their father, who is a fisherman, who is also incredibly violent um mm-hmm. and an alcoholic and one of the brothers has left home but um the two younger ones have to stay with their father and sort of live in fear of the times when he returns when they try to avoid him and he especially takes a lot of things out on on the very youngest of the brothers um and uh they live in a very very harsh environment by the sea um in, in a very remote part of Tasmania, and. Um, you know, things go horribly
1: wrong. Oh my God, it sounds brutal. <laughs> I
0: won't give any more away, but it's so just, you know, it's not dissimilar to, to Evie Wilde's prose um, and concerns as well. And I, I would just really recommend it. It's, it's a wonderful book. Okay, this is Carrie Plitt on Literary Friction, back here with Octavia Bright and also Evie Wilde for our book recommendations for this month. So Octavia, do you want to start us out?
1: Yes, gladly. Um, I got some really fabulous books for Christmas, and one of them was a short story collection called Things to Make and Break by Mae Lantan, Tan, uh, which was given to me by a friend who works in publishing, and she said, this is really so brilliant, and it made me think of you, and it made me think of, you know, the way that you write, and, and how it will she th- thought that it would speak to me, and she was absolutely right. Um, it's a great book. It's a debut. And um, you know sometimes you open a, a, a book or a story and it just kind of punches you in the face. <laughs> it's a bit like that. Um, there was a, a review of it in The Guardian by a guy called James Smart who described the stories as flinty, cigarette-stained narratives, which I thought was really perfect, mm-hmm. actually. Um, they're, they're quite hard-hitting... Um, full of witty details like there's a pole dancer named Proust um, <laughs> and, uh, and she kind of approaches big drama with capital letters but also the attention to detail um, there's a, a life class model who she describes as looking like she was clothed even though she wasn't and things like that so you, you know it's a really visual um, description but I, I love it I haven't finished all of them yet so I, I can't wait
0: to finish the rest and I'll be keeping my eye out for anything else that she writes that's for sure Great, thank you. Um, why don't I go next? Uh, I'm going to recommend a novel that I randomly picked off my parents' bookshelf while I was home in the states over Christmas. It's called Swamplandia with an exclamation point, and um, it's by an American author called Karen Russell. I think it got a lot of attention in the states when it was first published in 2011. It was being short. It was shortlisted for the Pulitzer, um, but I don't know that it made much of a splash. ha. <laughs> here. Oh, she's so witty today. (laughs) Um, This book was completely expected in all the right ways. Uh, And what I mean by that is that I, I had no idea what to expect. And when I read it, I could never, ever, ever have predicted that this is what this book would be about, but it was all the better for it. Um, It is about the Big Trees, who are a family of alligator wrestlers who live on an (laughs) alligator theme park called Swamplandia on an island off the coast of Florida, and every day they put on an alligator wrestling show for all the tourists that come and have lots of souvenirs. Um, And obviously, from that description, there's a large dose of the uh, comically absurd involved, but what I really loved about this was that it was all underpinned by, by genuine empathy and emotion, um, and in that sense, it, it sort of reminded me of George Saunders' stories, um, especially his his most recent collection, The Twelfth of December, um, which a lot of people read and, and enjoyed. That that mix between something that's funny but also has a real heart, which is oh god, the worst word that we always use in the publishing industry, but it did feel that way, and um, I I would. The, the writing itself has this contagious crackling energy that made me want to keep reading and reading and reading and reading. So I'd really recommend it.
1: Also, it's kind of good from sharks to alligators. Yeah, you know, yeah,
0: <laughs> and I think there's there's some of that thing going on with the the fear but also fascination with alligators in this book. So common kind of nice. thing. You might enjoy it. Yeah. Um, so Evie, could we have your recommendation, please?
2: Sure. I'm going to recommend um, the Lonely, the Lonely by Michael. No, I'm not going to recommend that at all. I'm going to recommend The Loney by Andrew Michael Hurley. Um, and normally in these sort of recommendation segments, I try and find something a little bit unknown or, um, or kind of old or something. Um, but this is just one that cost us, so I feel a bit guilty um, recommending it. But it was just so good. Um, and I picked it off the shelf purely for it, having read nothing about it, for its cover. Um, which is another thing you're not supposed to do, um it just looked like the right side of creepy, and it really was it was um i I find it quite hard to read at the moment for various reasons and um and it really I could pick it up and be straight back immersed in it within seconds um, had a really, really long creepy atmosphere all about um I love that kind of religious creep i think that's that's some of the finest creep we have and um and fantastic on landscape and and animals um and i just think it's i read it at christmas and it's stuck with me it gave me back some fantastic teenage nightmares um, which i'm very grateful for because they're always helpful (laughs) <laughs> but yeah i would really recommend it and it's it's won the costa which is fantastic um but it, it was it fun. did
0: have quite a tricky road to publication didn't yeah, it I it was that. a really small independent press in ireland and was yeah. picked up um so it sounds yeah. like it's taken it yeah. a while it's to its it's right momentum. Spot. exactly <laughs> <laughs> okay well thank you so much E.vie. it's pleasure. been an absolute pleasure to have you on today Okay, that's it for today's show. Thank you to Evie Wilde, whose graphic novel Everything is Teeth is out in bookstores now, along with her two other fantastic novels. Um, And also thanks to Eddie Knight for production and music. Octavia, do you want to tell them about our exciting event? I do. Um, If you
1: like what you heard today, Evie is going to be one of the featured authors at the literary friction Faber Social. Uh, We're teaming up with our friends at Faber on Monday, February the 1st, at The Social in London. And the theme of the event is new voices. And we have a completely fabulous lineup, including authors Ned Bowman, Joanna Cannon, and obviously the wonderful Evie World. And also the Faber New Poets will be making their debut. Um, And we've also, on top of that, all of that got NTS's TTB and our own Eddie Knight spinning some tunes. So you can buy tickets and find out more information at fabersocial.co.uk or on our various social media outlets. And we would love to see you there. It's going to be a great night. It's going to be I'm really great. Really excited.
0: Great. It's our first proper event too. So yeah, come and show then your we spirit. might
1: even bust some moves on the dance floor afterwards. You I know, I won't be doing that.
0: <laughs> Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or on ntslive.co.uk can also check us out on facebook twitter and instagram uh please leave your comments and also please give us a five-star rating if if you want to if you <laughs> no think we're worth five stars on itunes <laughs> i'm carrie plitt with octavia bright and this is literary friction